Welcome to Legends from the Fireside. Standing upon the shoulders of giants in this genre, Legends from the Fireside is a hybrid storytelling RPG podcast set within worlds of sword and sorcery. In our tales, the dice tell the fates of those worlds, for good or for ill. No character is sacred. Survival is not guaranteed. As storyteller and game master, I craft the narrative from these dice rules and create quests from this chaos, all without knowing what could happen next. Listener discretion is advised, as we may explore dark corners of this genre. But, come now, for adventure awaits, listen in to the legends from the fireside. In the last episode of the podcast, we create three characters, but we meet two of them. The two characters that we meet are Nem the Dwarf and Morris the Fighter. Nem and Morris are trapped in dirt-walled cells beneath some kind of structure. Neither truly remembers where it is they were before this, but both of them have brief recollections of having stayed at a tavern or inn of some sort while traveling on the road. After realizing their chances of survival are getting slimmer by the moment, Morris agrees to pretend to be asleep in order to catch their captor off guard and attack him in hopes of escaping the cell. The combat goes off reasonably well, considering Morris is unarmed, but he sustains some injuries along the way. We end the episode with Morris being armed with the knife of the captor, as well as the leather garb that he was wearing, and he frees Nem from his shackles. Unfortunately for them, they hear laughter coming from the hallway north of their position. In order to make this an easier listening experience, I'm going to begin chronicling things such as the party status, the date, the time of day, as well as, more importantly, the chapter that each episode takes place in. So, while the first episode could easily be regarded as chapter one, this will be chapter two. Chapter two begins on day one, and it is evening. Party status. Nem, 8 out of 8 hit points. Morris, 4 out of 8 hit points. After Morris unlocks the shackles that bind Nem to the wall, Nem begins to grab at his wrists and his ankles and alleviate the pain of being locked up for all that time. I suppose I owe you my thanks, but before we get into that, maybe we should inspect uh, who our friends down the hall are. Morris nodded his head in agreement as he looks back outside of the caged cell. There's more than one. I think... It sounds like there might just be two, but I can't really be certain. Well, I suppose this is a chance I can show you a thing or two about the old fisticuffs, eh? <laughs> Alleviating much of the gloomy mood within the cell, Morris smiles at Nem's joke. Morris soon turned around 
and begin to walk out of the dirt cell, grabs a torch off the wall, and walks around in the small cul-de-sac of cells. As Morris looks left and right outside the cell door, he sees that there are a total of four cells in this area, two of them being used by Morris and Nem, the other two appearing to be vacant. As he looks across, he can see that there's a single hard-framed door where the captor must have come from, but to his left, the northern cavern, he can see a pathway that leads off into the darkness, beyond what his torchlight can illuminate. Almost in response to this, the sound of two men arguing seems to boom from the doorway in the darkness. Morris nearly jumps in alarm as Nem puts a hand on his shoulder. Well, what do you say? Should we get the jump on him? Without even looking to face Nem, Morris nods his agreement. At this point, our characters are going to attempt to sneak down the hallway. The floor is gravel, and neither of the characters are very good at sneaking, but the other side of the doorway seems like a lot of hustle and bustle is going on anyway, so their chances are moderately okay that they might be able to get the sneak on these guys. So I'm going to roll a surprise, and I'm going to give them a plus one on this, so that the two guards on the other side of the door will be surprised on a one through three on a d6 roll. Let's see that roll now. Ugh. A five. Just when I thought maybe they could catch a break and get the upper hand in a combat, I should have thought twice. As the two men shoulder the wooden door and prepare themselves, they make eye contact for just a brief moment, and Nem winks. As Nem swings the door open with reckless abandon, he rushes into the room, ready to tackle whoever seems to be in front of him. Unfortunately, swinging in the door like that and scuffling his feet doesn't afford him much of a surprise at all, and both of the guards are able to leap up from their seats at a card table, grabbing weapons at their sides and preparing to engage in combat. The room itself has a series of doors on either side of the wall. The moderate furnishings in this room include a few different chairs seated around a card table. The card table is adorned with a bunch of coins, as well as cards and knucklebone dice. Combat begins. Round one. Let's roll for initiative first, and I'm really hoping that the good guys get a good hand on this one. Okay, good guys got a three, and the captors have a one. Okay, so the good guys are gonna go first. Nem's gonna run inside the room and attempt to steal a weapon from one of them, which happens to be a club on the table. But Morris is going to run in and he's going to stab at one of them. Okay, let's see that attack roll. Oh, great. Alright, Morris got a 17, and now we can roll for his damage with his newly found knife. A three, wow. So Morris rushes into the room immediately with the same reckless abandon that Nem has and stabs one of the two guards, dealing nearly enough to kill the man. Now for the captor's turn, one of them picks up the vacant club, and the other one attempts to fight Nem with his bare hands. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> I guess this is not Nem's uh, lucky day. He swings in at Nem and gets a critical hit. He's going to only do D2 damage, uh, 2d2 damage, and we get three total points of damage. Wow, that brings Nem down to five hit points. 
Okay, second round of combat. Let's roll initiative. Good guys got a six, great. And the bad guys got a three. All right, perfect. So Nem's gonna swing in with his club and Morris is gonna swing in with his weapon as well. So Morris stabs, oh my goodness, he got a 19 on the attack roll. Okay, and four points of damage kills the captain. Oh, wow, look at that. Morris all of a sudden gets weapon and changes the entire style of combat altogether. Nem on the other hand rolls and up. Oh, Nem got a one, fumbling. So we're gonna say that he accidentally slips and throws the club across the room, disarmed just like his opponent. Okay, now the bad guys are gonna roll for morale first. And that's 2d6, and they have to surpass a certain score. We got seven. Okay, so they meet their morale score needed, and they stay in the combat. So the one left over, a captor, swings in to try to punch Nem in the face, and he gets six. Okay, not quite enough, so he swings and misses Nem, misjudging his height. Now for the third round, the initiative. Okay, good guys got a five. And the bad guy's got a, ooh, a five. Simultaneous actions. Okay, so let's do this. So Morris is gonna stab in with his knife and Nem is going to attempt to punch. So Morris rolls for the attack as he rushes around the table to stab the man in the back. And a 17, excellent, perfect. Uh, next, damage, three points. All right, Morris is really starting to clean house. Uh, our captor only has one hit point left, so let's see if Nem can finish him off with a good, well-placed blow. Okay, and a 17 on the attack roll. Wow, okay. So again, only a D2 of damage from Nem, but even one point will kill the man. So we'll say that Nem, after, after Morris stabs the captor, Nem is able to shove the man to the ground, and as he falls, he smacks his head on the table edge and dies. Nem immediately walks over to the side of the table, grabs a bottle of whiskey that seems to be sitting there, and takes a hearty swill off the bottle. As they wait for either of the guards to stir, they notice that both of them appear to be dead. Morris has a disgusted look on his face as the brighter illumination in this room makes both of the dead bodies that much more apparent of a sight. Nem, on the other hand, seems to be unfazed by this and nearly polishes off the entirety of the whiskey bottle before throwing the bottle in the corner with a shatter. The two men now look over the bodies and the table and find on them two more clubs, two leather armors, cheap booze on the table, a set of cards, some keys, and seven silver pieces. So both Morris and Nem are going to wield the clubs since that seems much more to their liking. And Nem puts on some leather armor. They look around now and see all the various doors of the chamber. One of the doors says, keep out, in very inky scrabble on a piece of parchment that's hastily nailed to the door. Both of the members of this group look at it, then look at each other. Mars looks back to the door and says, I'm not really one to defy the orders of whoever put this up here. And I don't think they would have put that up for no good reason. Behind one of the doors on the right side of this chamber is a staircase that leads up to a second floor. At the top, there is a trap door 
which seems to have illumination peeking through the corners of the wood. As they get closer to the stairwell and look up it, they can hear the sounds of patrons at a tavern above, clinking glasses and talking amongst themselves, albeit muffled through the wood and likely far away from the trapdoor itself. Inside the same chamber, there are a few different boxes and bundles of raw foodstuffs laid about on the floor. Nem, not taking a chance to think about it twice, begins to ruffle through the bags and finds a bushel of apples as well as some vegetables and begins to stuff one of the satchels, gathering about three days worth of rations for himself. He looks back at Morris, who looks appalled, thinking that the man could think about food at a time like this, and Nem simply winks in response. Before heading up the ladder, Morris heads back out into the room where the two men were playing their game and sees that one last door has yet to be opened and has a padlock on the door. Recognizing that one of the dead captors had a key on him, he immediately sticks it into the keyhole and twists the lock. Nem walks over to Morris, munching on an apple loudly, and as he throws the half-eaten core across the room, he brushes his hands off quickly on his pants and reaches for the doorknob to push it open. The door opens with a creak, and as it does, they see inside, with the light of their torch, a few small satchels strewn about on the ground with coins spilled everywhere, as well as a small chest that is left ajar. Morris and Nem slowly walk into the room, anticipating some sort of a trap, potentially. But once they realize that there is no source of danger and no need for alarm, they begin to thumb through all of the loot inside of this chamber. They find well over 700 silver pieces, piles of copper pieces amounting to about 800, two gemstones, one worth 50 gold and one worth 100, both of them chunks of moonstone, and two pieces of jewelry, a golden ring and a silver necklace worth 500 and 600 gold respectively. Nem immediately grabs a satchel of 100 silver pieces, he grabs the two gems worth 150 gold in total, and grabs the two pieces of jewelry worth 1,100 gold pieces in total. As Nem looks back at Morris with a grin, he recognizes that Morris has something of a sad look on his face. What's the matter, boy? Morris replies in a glum demeanor. I didn't think that the first money I'd be making on a trip like this would be that what I've stolen from other people. I mean, I can only imagine that these people probably stole it from others, and as Morris looks back down the other way, perhaps stolen from people just like us. As the implications of his speech hang upon Nem's consciousness, he rolls around the thought in his mind for a couple moments if he should leave any of the wealth behind, and instead, he walks by Morris and simply says, Well, they're lost. As the two of them walk back to the ladder in the other room, they listen intently up to the top of the ladder's trapdoor, where they hear the sounds of merriment and revelry at the top of the stairs. The sounds of clinking glasses and a light piccolo being played lend them to the belief that there may be a tavern of sorts upstairs. Not hesitating for even a moment, Nem begins to climb the ladder hastily and smacks the trapdoor wide open. 
revealing the fact that they're in some sort of a back room or a storage room in something of a tavern. As he looks around and sees one chamber, presumably leading to a back bedroom, he looks immediately to the other side and sees that a door, well-trafficked and without even a handle, must lead to the tavern itself. Num pulls himself through the trap doorway and helps Mars climb up the stairs before walking over to this door and smacking it open with a hefty push. As Nem smacks the door open, him and Morris walk into the room as if they own the place. The patrons of the bar, a total of five people and one person behind the bar, all immediately go silent and the innkeeper himself goes pale as a ghost as he looks upon these two people, battered, bloodied, dirty, and wearing leather armor. As the innkeeper looks upon them more intently, he squints, and his expression goes to a look of panic as he points and says, Well, who are you? How did you... What's going on here? Before Morris can get a word in edgewise, Nem immediately shoves him aside and walks forward, pointing one pudgy dwarfish finger at the innkeeper and says, Now you listen here. I'm the one who's asking the questions. What is going on in that basement, and how did we end up in there? Now, before we go any further, I think it's fair that we roll a reaction roll, just to see how things go in this interaction. So, we're going to roll 2d6, add any relevant modifiers, and see how it goes. Now, thanks to Morris and Nem having not great charisma scores, there will be no bonus to this roll. Let's see what I got. I got a 6 on 2d6s. Now on a reaction table, this means that I got a pretty neutral response from the innkeeper. So that's not terrible. So at least we know he's not going to be aggressive, but it also means he's not going to be friendly. Let's see how that pans out. Garrick, the innkeeper, immediately throws his hands up, trying to calm down the situation as he sees that the dwarf is armed. Now you listen here. I just did what I was told. And I did what I had to do in order to survive. A bunch of these men, these bandits, they came here not too long ago. They told me they needed to use the basement. Said they knew of some sort of strange building in the basement. And they were right about that. They said that if they were allowed to use it, I was allowed to live. Would you have done differently? The look of shock on the faces of every member inside of the tavern at this point was only juxtaposed by the look of a man in the back who at this point has been quiet and soon he steps forward and says now wait a minute are you to tell me that people have been going down into there and going missing why my sister went missing into this place I came here to do some reconnaissance and it seems like I found all the answers I needed Nem immediately replies to Garrick without even addressing this man who approached them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going to take all the money that I got, and all the food that I got, and you better hope that I never come back here. Are we clear? Garrick, recognizing that this may be an opportunity to avoid a fight with a dwarf, nods his head quickly in agreement, and promises that he'll contact the local authorities about these bandits and hopefully getting rid of them from this location once and for all. But before they can part ways, 
that strange man approaches again and says, I don't think I'm being heard here. My sister went missing, and I would do anything to know what has happened to her and reclaim even a, a single piece of what she's left behind. As he so dramatically throws a hand in front of his face, in a look of feigned dismay, Morris and Nem look to each other, and both of them roll their eyes, seeing very clearly that this man was attempting to pull something of a ruse on them. Morris chimes in and says, Well, what is it that she had go missing? Finn, this mysterious man, chimes in, Well, she had a family heirloom, a golden ring, Perhaps you found it down there, with maybe her body. Did you find her body? If you did, I would I would never dream to go look for it. I couldn't bear to see the sight. Nem immediately reaches for the tabletop, where a single flag in a veil sits waiting, and takes a hearty swig off of it, and looks back at his hand, seeing the golden ring that he had pilfered from below was on his hand. Recognizing a thief at work, he looked back at this man, and he said, Listen, if you want the ring, you're going to have to help us get out of here. Nem quickly looked back over at Garrick and says, Do you know where they took our stuff? My gear, my weapons, my bag. Garrick quickly shook his head left to right and says, They used a secret door behind the building at the well. They used to take things in and out of it, and I wasn't allowed to see it. Now, I'm going to roll another reaction roll, because I think it's only fair to the party that if Finn is actually persuasive, according to the dice, he should be able to join the party, and they should be able to trust him to an extent. So let's roll a reaction check. Now, for anybody who remembers from the first episode, Finn has a particularly good charisma score, and for that reason, he's going to give a plus one on his reaction rolls. So let's roll that now. Oh, wow. Okay, there's that plus one at work. We got a 10. A 10 is a really good score for this. It means that our party will actually be helpful. Immediately, Finn chimed in again, leaning forward into the conversation with his hands up defensively. Well, don't, don't ask me how I know this, but it may be the case that they took them to the local pawn shop in Oak Hollow. I presume it's Ocalo just because of the proximity, and I presume a pawn shop because they don't seem to ask many questions. Finn, recognizing the tension in both Nem and in Mars's glares, slowly began to calculate every word that fell out of his mouth. Nem immediately leans in and asks a question of Finn. So you're saying you know the way to that pawn shop? The one that might have our stuff? Finn choking on his own words, leans back a little bit at this point and says, Well, yes, but I don't want it to be thought that I'm in leagues with such people. I, I just happen to know a thing or two about a thing or two. Nem quickly cuts him off and says, That's good enough for me. Do you have a backpack? Things packed? A weapon? Finn looks over at the corner of the room where he had been sitting and a bag with a short bow leaning across the top of it, sit ready and waiting for a quick escape. He looks back at Nem and says, Well, I'm a pretty good shot, I suppose. You don't think we're going to need to, uh, you know. And with that, the party is formed in a group of three. 
Now that our party has been assembled, and we have a pretty good idea of what our first quest is, I think it's time we discuss the world around our characters. I think that the easiest way to approach this would be to look at it in three different ways. There is the macro, or the world view, there is the mid-tier view, and then there is the micro view. I think that by looking at the largest view first, we can at least frame the world that we're in when we talk about this campaign. So to begin with, this is all taking place in a campaign setting that me and my friend have been writing up for quite some time, though not in any serious publishable terms, yet. This takes place on a continent known as Antora. Antora is a mysterious place. It is not one that is well established or inhabited, and instead it is shrouded in mystery. Originally, an empire of elves had lived here before some sort of troubles had caused them to go to civil war with one another. At this point in time, elves are an oddity, since thousands of years have passed and different kingdoms of men have risen and fallen, taking over the lands of Antora. Until now, we see the current rulership, known as the Order of the Silver Star, a unity of five different kingdoms, each one led by one lord, attempting to embody one virtuous belief. These five virtuous beliefs are charity, honor, kindness, valor, and wisdom. The knights who serve underneath this order act as sort of the military force or police force, generally speaking, the law of the land of Antora. While there are different areas that exist beyond the reach of the Order of Silver Star in this kingdom of gain, as it were, we won't really need to go too much into that, as there are a few islands surrounding this continent and one area to the far east beyond the mountains known as the Deadlands of Galarat. As one can probably tell from the name Deadlands, this is not the kind of place that people go to often, and it is also a place shrouded in mystery. It is the original home of the king who once ruled over these lands before his order took place beneath him, and now rule in his stead. As one may assume, in a kingdom ruled by an oligarchy of knights, there is something of an undercurrent of dissent that exists here. Lots of people have enjoyed the benefit of having such a chivalrous and righteous group ruling over them. Antora used to be a very religious place, with the king of Gain originally being a very pious ruler. People had a sense of disdain for this rulership, and so, under the order of the Silver Star, this circle of knights, religion's actually not really at the heart of anything that they do. And for this reason, religion is not necessarily taboo, but it's not something that people have as a regular component of their everyday life. So, while there is a sense of dissent amongst the people of Antora towards the rulership, it ought to be noted that each of the different five kingdoms ruled by a member of this order have their own reasons why there is dissent. The last thing that I'll note here for this macro view of Antora is the idea that this is still something of a frontier zone. It is not a very well-explored land, and instead, the different towns, cities, villages, and other settlements that have propped up here are all doing their best to get by. There are any number of evils in this land, 
each one of them different and in their own right, trying to vie for some semblance of power. Warring clans of goblins and orcs, gnolls, ogres, trolls, make their homes amongst the mountains and the forests of Ontora, while others, such as the dwarvish-led Emberblade Syndicate, are more economically driven, prosperity-seeking clans hoping to bleed this land of all of the wealth it's worth. But now, let's take a step even closer to our land and do more of a regional approach as we look at the region that our characters are now within, Delagrad. Delagrad is the land of charity. It is ruled over by one of the lords of the order and it sits on the far western shores of Ontora. Towards the northeast are the Eldrock Mountains. To the southeast, we have a large lake known as Lake Wolfwind, which has a surrounding marsh around it known as the Aram Marsh. In the direct center is the bay known as the Lantern Bay, where the city of Thadel, the capital city of Delagrad, rests comfortably upon the Silver River. To the west, we have a series of islands, but the two most prominent are known as the Whisperwave Island and the Aurel Island. In the northwest is a forest known as the Bevran Wood. It is the largest forest in the area, and it is dotted with mountains, hills, and various rivers and aquatic systems that make it a viable place for many pioneers and frontiersmen to call their home population of Delagrad is pretty much human-centric, but the city of Thadel is unique in that its guild houses host a fair population of gnomes, halflings, and dwarves who make up quite a lot of the different specialist guilds, such as goldsmiths, bakers, etc. Being the region associated so much with charity, Delagrad's lord, known as the Master of Charity, is named Adro Kaloth. Adro Kaloth has made a name for himself amongst the nobility for being very charitable in a way that goes above and beyond what's expected of his people, oftentimes to the dismay of the nobility and the rich who are looking to hold on to much of their wealth. But as the times grow tougher and tougher, the tax hikes that he has been requesting in order to afford bunkhouses and services for those in need have definitely earned him quite a reputation. Lastly, the religious practice that one can find in Delagrad is definitely tame compared to other kingdoms and other fantasy settings, but in regards to Ontora, Delagrad is definitely very open and accepting of people's different faiths. The primary god of worship in this region is Azariad, a god of light, warmth, and healing. But now it is time for us to look even closer. Our party are currently on the West Run Road, the farthest eastern point in Delagrad. They find themselves north of the Arim Marsh, but south of the Eldrock Mountains, to the east of the city of Thadel, in their hopes to reach Oak Hollow quickly. Nem has suggested that they cross the plains north to Oak Hollow rather than following the road, all the way to the crossroads up the Bay Road. Following these roads, the party would likely find themselves taking at least five days of travel on foot. By crossing the plains, it seems like it'll only take two days if they are quick. So, now the party walk out the front door of the tavern, finding themselves bathed in the onset of moonlight and starlight on a crisp evening. Looking north, 
across the fields to the mountains, they realize that their trip will likely take a couple days, and it will not be very easy. Finn, realizing that this may be his meal ticket to finding loot and treasure, realizes that this certainly will not be an easy ride. Morris looks to Nem and then over to Finn, recognizing that they may be the closest thing he has to friends. But Morris is interested in one thing and one thing only. He must get his bag back from that pawn shop owner in Oak Hollow. Otherwise, why did he leave home in the first place? Thank you for listening to an episode of Legends from the Fireside. If you enjoyed what you heard, feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. Some of these reviews may be read at the end of episodes. You can also reach me at Legends from the Fireside on Twitter, or you can email me at legendsfromthefireside at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening to the show, and be sure to come back soon to listen to more Legends from the Fireside.